0: Hey Whiskey Ringers, welcome to a brand new intro. First off, there are still a few bottles of our Barrel Single Barrel Rye, finished in Armagnac casks, picked in partnership with This Is My Bourbon Podcast. Check out the show notes for links to purchase. Second, I am thrilled to announce that I've joined the Bar Cart Co-op. This group of podcasts and shows has a show or multiple for everyone. I'll talk more about them in the mid-roll. Finally, there are still two $25 spots available on Patreon. These are the last two spots that will ever be open on that tier. So if you've been putting it off, grab your spot today. There are also spots available at the $15 a month level if you want to support, but can't quite commit to that $25 tier just yet. There's a spot in supporting for everyone's budget. And I truly thank you all for making this podcast possible. Hey, Whiskey Ringers, welcome to a new episode of the Whiskey Ring Podcast. Today we are going back down to Tennessee. We haven't been there a little bit, but I am thrilled to welcome back, sorry, to welcome on, I should say, Andy Nelson, uh, co-founder, head distiller of Nelson's Greenbrier Distillery in Nashville, Tennessee. And the brand behind, as you know, Nelson's Greenbrier, Bell Mead, and uh, many of the most famous releases coming out of Tennessee in the last couple of years. So Andy, welcome on. Yeah, thank you for having me. I'm excited. So to uh, just give you guys who are listening a little... Um tidbit, we are going to skip the kind of family history of this of the distillery uh to an extent, a couple questions, but the story of the refounding is mostly gonna be found in other interviews, podcasts that you can find as always in research notes at the end of the show notes. Um, I really encourage you to listen to the story if you don't know it, because it's fascinating, or even better, go to Nashville, visit the distillery and learn it there and pick up a bottle while you are there. Amen. So I'm gonna start out with um, the history of the old Nelson's distillery. So this is from your triple great-grandfather in the 1860s, 70s, 80s, 90s, all the way up to 1909. Uh, and at the time, just to give people a little background, you, that distillery was pretty much the biggest one in Tennessee.
1: Right, Right.
2: by quite a wide margin, yeah.
0: Yeah, it was bigger than Jack, it was bigger than George, which were around starting in the 60s and 70s, 1860s and 70s. Um, But you guys were way ahead. You were bottling in glass uh, around the same time that uh, Foreman was doing in, in Louisville. So very early adopters of that. But as I listened to the history of the first iteration, let's call it, of the family distillery, something kept nagging at me, which was that, you know, Charles Nelson, great great grandfather, had the distillery until he passed in 1891. Then his wife Louisa took over and ran it till 1909, when uh, Tennessee prohibition state prohibition hit, and then obviously that
1: rolled over into uh, nationwide prohibition. Now, the big question, I guess, is. Why? Why did
0: that distillery not, in some way, survive prohibition, where ones like Jack and George did? And we're putting aside ones that had permits for medicinal purposes. I'm saying ones that would have been shut down, but were able to come back right afterwards.
2: Sure, I I I really appreciate being asked this question because I you know I don't have any. You know, fact written in in stone about this. It's more kind of speculation, but and there are a handful of things like that in our history where it just seems like it makes sense that it would happen. You know, X, Y, or Z way. So the way that I think happened that makes sense to me would be that it was so much bigger than any other distillery within the state. So at the time that it shut down, Tennessee. Uh, Prohibition came along in 1909. And at that time, uh, Greenbrier Distillery was responsible for something like two thirds of all whiskey production within the state, which is crazy for one distillery, especially when you consider how many other distilleries there were just by sheer volume. Of course, a lot of them were much, much smaller, obviously. So what I think happened would be that It was so large that when, and again, I'm not, I don't mean to speak for, you know, say Jack or or George Dickel or anything. But kind of anecdotally, what would make sense to me is that, you know, if Jack and Dickel were so much smaller, from what I understand, Jack, for example, moved and kind of dodged state prohibition and moved into, I want to say it was maybe uh missouri or alabama or something and and maybe then i think in kentucky they had, as i think
0: they had sites in both in in st louis and in uh, alabama for a certain yeah. point in time yeah
2: and so they were able to kind of dodge state by state prohibition in some way and then from my understanding federal prohibition came along and they shut down for a bit but then opened back up or something so the reason i think that they were able to do that was that it was a it was a small enough operation that they could move whereas the the irony of being the biggest distillery within the state it was so large that it wasn't it just wasn't easy to move operations into a different state it was such a bigger operation that it was a major undertaking to do you know i don't know what louisa may have known about you know what was coming down the pike which is to say federal prohibition and culture and society just kind of flowing in this direction. Um, And also, in my mind, you know, not to speak for anybody else, but it seems, again, speculation here, but putting myself in Louise's shoes, however difficult that or impossible that may be for me, it seems to me that by the time Prohibition came along as well, she was running this and she was one of the only women to run such a large distillery uh, in the country and with all the social and cultural pressures surrounding her that is to say the you know the women's suffrage movement the, the rather the temperance movement excuse me and all and all of these things and her being probably targeted by a lot of groups as you know you're a you're a woman and you're against this you know you run this demon whiskey company and and all of that what i think is that she likely said okay this is just a good excuse to to just get out of this you know and so again, I, I don't know, I can't say that as, as fact, but that's what would make sense to me. And plus they had, the family had gotten into banking. But so before Charles had passed away in 1891, he had been an investor in a, in a bank here in town. And so the family had this banking um, connection. And so they were able to you know, more comfortably shut down the distillery and get into banking, they didn't have to continue bootlegging or anything like that. And so it, it just seemed like if nothing else, maybe the path of least resistance, you know, I, I want to get, you know, wipe my hands of all this kind of social pressure and and such. So that's, that's kind of the way that I've figured it, it might've gone back in those days.
0: It makes me curious. Uh, I know you've, you've spoken to Drew Hannish over at uh, Whiskey Lore, Mm-hmm. And, uh, he's about to release. It was supposed to be this month. It's going to be next month. Uh, so January 24, he's going to be releasing his book on Tennessee whiskey history. And after this, I'm going to send him an email and ask him if he knows anything. Cause I think you're right. I mean, in again, pure speculation, but I think you're pointing to things that I would think of too. That's the, the downside of being very large at the time. Um, Louisa probably targeted. Also, frankly, she she ran the distillery for eighteen years after Charles's death, which in itself would be a career,
2: a yeah, career life exhausting you know? at the very
0: least. Yeah, right. It wasn't like she was thirty or forty and was going to jump to another estate and distillery. It, like she was probably ready to retire at that point anyway. Yeah. Um, and I'd yeah, also she died
2: in nineteen uh, eighteen. Right. So, so I mean,
0: that's still incredible. Later. She. Yeah so and i'd also be curious to know if if everything was dumped if barrels were sold elsewhere you know into other states before nationwide set in um
2: yeah what i what we do know about that is essentially when statewide prohibition came we were made to stop producing more but we were allowed to sell our barrels off they didn't just come and smash the barrels and so we actually had a sort of a third production or not production but like warehousing facility up uh, on whiskey row in louisville um, at 100 east main street which is now like a university of louisville art department building Um, but that was the place when tennessee prohibition came we kind of sold the remaining barrels off you know out of the state of kentucky to keep keep a little revenue flowing so it wasn't all just an immediate cut off of of all business
0: right and and the last the last point to that too that you mentioned is that these state prohibitions went into effect in most cases much faster than national prohibition did. So Louisa may not have had much warning that this was going to take place, in which okay. case there's not a lot of time to move the barrels, sell legally and produce legally, et cetera. Um, but yeah, it was a question that was nagging at me. And I'm, I was sure I got was going to get a good response and you definitely delivered on that one. Okay. So. Uh, with the history of the brand, um, I should also say your you know, the, your great-great-great-great-grandfather grandf- had nearly 30 brands under his aegis. Uh, so far, you've resurrected, obviously, Nelson's Greenbrier itself, the um, Belmede brand uh, that was in conjunction with his partner. Uh, of the other 30, any plans to resurrect any of those other ones?
1: Sure. I
2: mean, so to date, we've we have, we resurrected those two. And then we were kind of in some ways, mostly retired Bell Mead in favor of a brand called Nelson brothers, which is one that did right. not exist back in the day. And, uh, and Louisa's liqueur. So Nelson brothers, the brand and, and Louisa's, the brand did not exist back in the day. And strategically the our kind of thinking is that we are in the modern day and it's, you know, a new, a new generation. And so we want to be careful to, you know, honor the past, but also kind of embrace the change and and really have our own new fingerprints on it, our new thumbprint on it. And so that's part of the reason for these new brands. But yeah, absolutely. I mean, we want to bring some of those old brands back there. Some of them have really cool names and I, I'm a little hesitant to say them out loud publicly, just, you know, cause I want them and they're, Uh, there's some cool stuff and, and that is to say, not just bourbon, not just rye, but you know, corn whiskeys, there was a malt whiskey, uh, there were fruit brandies, some gins, all all kinds of stuff. And so that's, that has always been our goal and our intent. And, uh, yeah, we could, we, we absolutely plan on bringing some more of those back and under the old names too.
0: Awesome. Do you, are the, I guess this cuts into an area of business law with which I have very little knowledge, but by resurrecting the brand, by uh, receiving again, the original DSP-5, which I have a question about too, did those brands transfer to your ownership with that Um, or are they still kind of out there?
1: Yeah. As
2: far as the brands themselves. So again, yeah, the law is uh, not necessarily my strong suit, though I understand what we need to of course. But it kind of goes just to trademark law. So as far as the DSP-5 goes, we can we can talk about that in, in greater depth if you'd like. But that was just, we knew that back in the day, that's what it was. Although back in the day, it was RD-5, registered distillery 5, because the sort of phrase DSP didn't yet exist. That's more of a post-prohibition thing. But we just knew that it was RD-5 back in the day. And so then when we reapplied for our modern day DSP, we asked for this historic designation. And we gave the TTB this, uh, you know, all the historic uh, sort of data or uh, think, you know, facts and figures and, and uh, evidence rather that we were in fact DS, uh, RD5 back in the day. And by frankly, some bureaucratic miracle, they just said, sure, you can do it because DSP5 is not taken. So had we not requested that designation, it, we would have just been given the default of something like DSP TN 15026 or some entirely unsexy number like that. But so now we've got five and it's much cleaner and and there's a story behind it too. But as far as those other brands go, um, those aren't necessarily by default in conjunction with, you know, the DSP number or even the trademark of Nelson's Greenbrier. And so from my understanding, it's like a trademark will effectively lapse uh I think within seventy five years of of uh, disuse, um, and so they're technically, I guess public domain or available anyway. um, hence, you know, re- resurrecting the Greenbrier Nelson's Greenbrier distillery as a company name uh, as a brand name, Nelson's Greenbrier, Tennessee whiskey. those just weren't taken, and it it wasn't necessarily that it was easier for us to transfer because it was our family. It's just, quite frankly, I think that you could have done it if you had wanted to. It's just we were the ones who discovered it and it made the most sense. Uh, and so there you have it. But I, I, does that answer the question?
0: Yeah, I I think so. Like I said, it, it's an area where I just don't have that much knowledge trademark law or anything. Um, got into law school, didn't go. So I got zero knowledge <laughs> there um, other than what I kind of absorbed by osmosis from my wife and that's criminal law. So that's different. (laughs) Um, So going still dealing with the, the original site and the original plant that you found by talking to that butcher, uh, which still it, like I said, it's an amazing story. Um, Just skipping ahead a little bit when, when you talked with um, drew at whiskey lore in, I think 2020, uh, you and Charles were both on. You said that when you went to see the site, it it wasn't like it was raised to the ground. It, you were able to see uh, where the distillery sat, recognize some of the parts, like where the warehouse was, um, maybe where a fermenter was. Uh, I I understand and I've heard you kind of explain why you decided to to rebuild in or build period in Nashville as opposed to on the original site. Um, but was there any thought to um, perhaps buying this original site and making it an historic place, or a? Uh, I'm even thinking you could just buy the site and and have a warehouse there. That's, you know, kind of like how Wild Turkey uses their special area warehouses for things, and it would be a fun throwback to the past. So, um, yeah, just curious if there was thought to that. Yeah,
2: absolutely. I mean, we've we've thought a lot about that, um, and we we continue to kind of slowly work through it. Um, There's some red tape kind of issues with that uh, in that this is kind of a a fun story, although it goes to our um, disadvantage in some ways, but back in about 1914 or 15. So this is after prohibition had shut the business down. uh, The family was selling off the land and the equipment and such, and the land was purchased by these five brothers, the Fisher brothers, in equal share. And as those five brothers, you know, died, um, not all at the same time, as far as I understand, but they're, they left their equal portion of that land to all of their living heirs. And so again, this is early, early to mid 1900s. So basically over the last hundred ish years, all living heirs of five people turns out to be potentially hundreds of people who right. by law, maybe technically own part of that land. They may not even know it. And so there's, there's part of that kind of trying to cut through the red tape. Cause of course, you know, the last thing we want is to, let's say we uh, figure out how to buy this land and then someone comes forward and says, no, this r- land is rightfully, you know, mine or at least one third of 1% is mine. And you know, that kind of thing. Um, not only would that be difficult and kind of annoying for us, but it's they're right, it technically would be part of their, you know, their inheritance or whatever. And so anyway, we're trying to kind of work through it. The folks who currently own the land are of the family of the Fisher family originally. So it's the same family, just different generations, and so um great people you know they would like for us to have the land because they know what it means to us and all um now the other part is when we first started and before we knew anything about the uh, this kind of red tape debacle about ownership of the land and such was that we were looking into absolutely building a distillery on that original site and figuring it out from there so what we ended up learning was that for one it's it is a beautiful space um, Greenbrier, Tennessee is not a huge town. It is more of a a suburb for sure, but it's you know, it's not exactly like rural entirely. And because people live there, you know, you their houses around that land. Um and part of the other issue was was that frankly if we bought the land and wanted to build a distillery there, because of the layout of the town and and houses and all we would have had to buy a bunch of houses that people live in uh, so that we could tear them down and build access roads for construction to to begin and happen and for just access then to the distillery so that was I mean especially at that point we didn't exactly have the money to do that but forgetting the money it's like what are we going to do just take people out of their homes and (laughs) say, we want to build this thing. So it it was just all this complicated stuff that was not worth doing at the time. But, but even so it's, um, you know, I, we would absolutely love to get back up to whether Greenbrier or just Robertson County somewhere, um, in that, that original sort of area would be like fantastic. We we've always still wanted to do that.
0: We'll have to, um, have you put in a a PO to constellation to, Build a brick house in Robertson County at least.
2: Oh yeah, uh, believe me, it's so, crossed the mind.
0: <laughs> so after you found the location, um, you were also find that there were two bottles of original whiskey at uh I believe the it was the Nashville Historical Society. Uh Greenbrier Historical um, Society. Greenbrier Historical Society.
2: Right, no more than probably a mile from the original distillery site.
0: So at the last I had heard, um they were there, but you haven't tasted them.
2: Right. So even those bottles were empty. So they're original empty bottles oh, they're empty. Okay. at the Greenbrier Historical Society. Now, we have since found more original bottles, um, most of which are empty, some of which are entirely unopened. Um, I, I I don't say full because over the you know 150 years or whatever, some of it has evaporated. I'm pretty sure it was not synthetic cork back in the day, but some of it has evaporated. So even though it's a a fully enclosed bottle that hasn't been opened, you know maybe it's four fifths full um, due to some evaporation even out of the bottle. So yeah, and I and you're right. I have not tasted it yet. I am still. There's something about, you know, the proverbial can't put the toothpaste back into the tube kind of thing going on. I I like the sort of mystery and the unknown. There's something very intriguing about that to me, but I I also really want to know what it tastes like. So part of me is like, I, I think eventually I will. And I think it'd be really cool, especially if we can find more bottles that have some of the liquid figuring out some way that we can, I don't know, raise money for charity or whatever, um, with the kind of crux of it being an opportunity to, you know, taste uh, taste a little bit of these hundred fifty year old bottles. Um, so I, yeah, I feel uh, I, I'm I'm conflicted about it as I speak still, uh, because it's a really cool thing, but I also there is something about Pandora's box that that's maybe not the most apt analogy, but you know what I mean. I I, yeah.
1: I like the mystery uh, of
0: it. I I completely get that. Uh, I think I would have trouble doing the same. So I certainly, I certainly wouldn't fault you for not wanting to, to do that. Um, And I think, you know, i I thought that I would be the same way, but even like
2: when our first child was born, we didn't want to know the sex until he turned out to be a boy, but we didn't know that until he was born. And that was like, I was actually fine with that. Um, And it was amazing. It was this really fun mystery for, you know, nine, 10 months. And then there he was, but uh, I, I actually, you know, I was pretty good with it, which was surprising, but I guess I have more patience than I thought.
0: Yeah, I, I fully admit I'm, I need to know, I need to yeah. know, but when it comes to, but I think it's different. Like it, it, when that time comes for, I was like, I think personal decision, I would want to know um, for the baby, but that's, that's also something with a clear end point, obviously, of, yeah. uh, you know, with the whiskey, it could just sit there for yeah. your entire life. That I think would ha- I, is where I would have the trouble. But I think also it, it's in some ways too, by keeping it in the bottle and not opening it, you're also showcasing that unique part of your history, which is that you were bottling in glass bottles. Mm-hmm. You know? You're not going to find Jack or George from that era. Simply because they weren't bottling in glass, they were in jugs or in other things that easily broke, were not airtight or as close to airtight as you could get back then. Um, so it's it's a relic of history that few from that time could get. so i so I get that. and I'm thinking particularly of that because last night, as of us recording, uh, what yesterday was repeal day, and some friends of mine got to open some antebellum whiskey mm-hmm. um distilled in 1860 in in Maryland which is crazy it's crazy yeah. that it survived that it's there it wasn't uh rancid in any way yeah it lost a little flavor but I mean give it a little credit it's you know yeah exactly uh, but that's it's something so fascinating but you can only do it once once yeah. you open it that's it
2: yeah yeah so long as I guess, you know, that you're just like, you accept it. And this is, is what it's going to be. And I, uh, and I'm going with it kind of thing. The other thing is also, this is, maybe it's more cynical of me, but there's part of me that's like, like, the fact is the sort of technology, the understanding, the knowledge, the science behind distillation, the understanding of it rather, um, is so much more advanced now than it was 150 years ago. 150 years ago, they, you know, the the notion of yeast being a thing that humans could propagate. They, I mean, really, the fact of yeast being uh, as effective as it is, and and to me, yeast, it's just the beating heart and soul of whiskey. It is, you don't create alcohol without it, you know. So, of course. But it was in, what, 1830s that really yeast was even discovered to be such an important part of it. And while they knew it, it was, it was still so mysterious. And so the control over yeast and flavor profiles and such was still in its very, very infancy back then. And so my questions are, could the whiskey have been as good... Of quality as it is now it certainly wouldn't have been as consistent I imagine from batch to batch um you know and there's still there's there's a certain romance to that as well but that's yeah anyway that's just a big question in my mind and I there's part of me that kind of again wants to leave that alone and let let the the mystery remain but um I don't know I also just don't want it to like taste it and be disappointed by it it's like nah it wasn't even that good but you know, I guess we'll. We may never know. That's,
0: that's fair. And if you ever go the charity route, I'll certainly not drop in a couple hundred k because I don't have that. But uh <laughs> I'll do a couple of ticket entries. See if I can get in on that. Yeah. um And I I hear you too. There is that thought of what does it taste like? Is it worse? Is it? I mean, even theoretically, is it is it better? Do we want to shift to this profile? Yeah. And then how do you evaluate it after 150 years is it is it a valid i think scientific inquiry is has to be valid and accurate so it could taste very good but is that how it tasted back then it could taste very bad but is it how it tasted back then it's about both at the same time
2: yeah i mean one of the things that i've always loved the idea of is going taking back to the original site and just kind of trying to harvest wild yeast from there now again, after 150 years of sitting there, it, it will have, um, it will have changed and evolved and all that. But, you know, and also who knows if any wild yeast we harvest, you won't know it, that it was necessarily the same yeast that was fermenting the the mash, but it's a cool thing to kind of make that connection again. So I, I'd
1: like to do that here at some point in the near future. Um, have you Met Alan Bishop. No, I've not met him, but I I know who he is. Yeah,
0: he's uh, usually my first go-to person when it comes to yeast. What? Uh, well, it comes when it comes to catch yeast, I should say. Hmm. Yeast science, I go to Pat Heist. Yeast yeah. practice, I go to Alan. So he he could potentially help you set up some traps there. That would be. Um, I, I hear your point that it could be a completely different yeast strain at this point, or even the same one that's evolved over century but um i think they i know they tried to do that at the eh taylor site when they uncovered that and they had the fermenters i don't know how successful they were or if they were able to even measure if they were successful i know they found some yeast i just don't know what they found
1: yeah yeah it's almost an unknowable thing but it's pretty cool it is it is that, I mean, I
0: can't even say more. It's just, it is, it's cool. I love it. <laughs> so jumping forward now to your current iteration. So um still one of the, uh, you know, one of the earliest in the craft movement, one of the early, and I hope that's okay to call uh, part of the craft movement, sure. uh, even as you've grown. Uh, so thinking in 2006, so, I mean, this yeah. is very early on.
2: Yeah. So 2006 was when we discovered this history, when we made that, uh, that trip to Greenbrier to go to the butcher and get the cow and all, and then we stumbled upon the distillery site. And um, and so from there, it took a few years to get a business plan uh, you know, going, and that evolved, of course, over the years. And, and then it took us until 2012 to actually get a product on market, and that was a 100% sourced product under the bell label uh that was mgp spirit we you know made our own blend of that um and then 2014 was when we were able to actually build our distillery here in nashville and start uh laying down barrels of our own own distillate so now we've been distilling on our own for uh for nine years which is really crazy to me but it's kind of amazing
0: i was gonna say in uh, august of next year in august of 2024 you're gonna hit 10 years of your own distillation yeah any uh plans looking forward to what a 10th anniversary might look like for that.
2: Yeah, I mean, we've been talking about it and we're we're so the thing about opening a brand new distillery is that inherently or you know, really any kind of production process the first certainly few months and really year I would say there's a period of working out the kinks and and getting better and tweaking the process. And so what that means, uh, as a result, is that the distillate coming off the still in our first year is not as high in quality as it is now because we've learned so much more, we've tweaked the processes and all that. Nor was it as uh, high in quantity because we weren't yielding as much because we didn't know as much of what we were doing. And so, so there's that. And it's you know, if we were to release a ten year old whether it be a blend or a single barrel or any kind of product of our own distillate, there is that thing to take into account. Like inherently it's not going to be as probably as good as what we're laying down today will be in 10 years, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Um, But we're absolutely going to do something. I mean, we, we're not entirely sure uh, you know, the likely thing is that we'll kind of be celebrating a 10 year anniversary of getting into that building kind of all throughout the year with various events and releases and things like that. So, uh I would just say stay tuned to to what we're doing cuz
1: honestly, uh nothing's set in stone just yet, but uh but we're working on it. Awesome. So, the in creating the brand, as I said, I the idea, of finding the distillery in
0: 2006, business plan, first product in 2012, um and this is I'm just repeating this more so I can keep my own timeline and in uh you know in check. So in between 2012, 2013, 2014, when you're really building out what you want the what do you want your not only the existing brand, the Bell Mead brand, but this new brand that you're going to start distilling for your under your own name, uh what you wanted it to be, you were you working uh with Dave Pickerel from the very beginning or did he come on a little bit later?
2: Yeah, we were working with him uh, from the beginning. He is the one who introduced us to not only um, Rob uh, from Rob Sherman from Vendome, who built our still, but you know pretty much any vendor who built uh, or sold us equipment in our distillery, as well as um, other folks. This you know, both I mean, both Dave and. The late great Dave Pickrell and late great Richard Wolf, um, you know, helped as a barrel broker. To he, we bought our first barrels from MGP through Richard Wolf, and I I can't remember if Dave introduced us to Richard, but um, my God, that was just so long ago. It's crazy, uh, but yeah, I mean, he, Dave was right on the ground floor. I mean, he was one of the first people we met. In fact, it's also a really funny, interesting story that before we met dave uh oh you know what it was dave did not introduce us to rob sherman at vendome rob introduced us to dave so we vendome is a little easier to kind of spot just because well you need a still and everybody's going to know where to go for that for american whiskey three-hour drive from here so we went and rob's just an incredibly nice and generous guy so he gave us some names of folks and um he threw out the names specifically Lincoln Henderson and Dave Pickrell. And we talked to Lincoln first. We met him, you know, because we were just essentially trying to flesh out a business plan. What's what's this business all about? Can you give us any advice? Talk to, you know, give us some other names of people and, and all would you be willing to kind of help us consulting etc. So we met him at like, you know, some um, some hotel like Holiday Inn lounge in uh outside of, of Louisville or something and we talked to him for a while and told us this is you know we've got this family history and we want to bring it back and all very nice and gracious and and gave you know introduced us to some good folks and then he said you know I, I I'd love to help you out if ever we can but I'm I'm probably not going to be able to do a ton for you um in terms of you know in the long term cuz my son, Wes and I are thinking of doing something that's not that dissimilar from what you're doing. And of course that then turned out to be angels envy, which, you know, not too much longer, uh, after that was released and to great success and acclaim. And so, so then after talking to Dave, you know, we met him first in the, the maker's lounge in fourth street live down in Louisville and, um, you know, had a drink or two with him, had some lunch, And, uh, we were his, we were Dave's second client, um, after he'd started Oakview consulting. And so, yeah, it was, it was a bit of a taste, uh, sort of a test for, for us and for him, um, as far as how he was going to work his consulting business. But I mean, he just was such a help. It's unbelievable how much he taught us. And then, you know, once we built the distillery, he was the one who taught me how to make whiskey. Um, and so, Oh, a you know, a lifetime of, uh, thanks to Dave, um, for that. But yeah, I mean, I guess to answer your question, we were working with Dave really from, from the very beginning and, uh, yeah, all the way through it.
0: The bar cart co-op is a group of five shows with something for everyone. First up is my whiskey den hosted by Michael Lisak, Pat Bologna and Mitch Weddle. Listen and watch live on Mondays at 9 for thoughts and discussions on craft spirits and, once in a while, some downright odd things. And yes, I'm talking about the cantaloupe liqueur that I can't believe could be good, yet I gotta admit, it's fantastic. Next up is Bourbon Turntable, hosted by Kevin Rose and Drew Crawley. Kevin and Drew are true lovers of both music and bourbon, and I got to join them to talk about my own whiskey and music journey back in March. It's still one of my favorite episodes I've ever been a part of. And it's a show that I listen to every single week. The next two are from a guy you may have heard of. After all, he's a two-time guest on the Whiskey Ring podcast. Mr. Alan Bishop, head alchemist at Spirits of French Lick and self-proclaimed reviver of the history of Indiana's Black Forest. Alan has two shows in the co-op, both of which are also weekly listens for me. The first one is Distiller's Talk with co-host Christy Atkinson. It's probably the nerdiest Spirits podcast I know of, and that's including my own and I absolutely love it. Some weeks you'll we'll be talking and capturing wild yeast in long-gone ghost distilleries in the Black Forest region. Others you'll be hearing from some of the most exciting up-and-comers in the distilling, brewing, and overall spirits-producing industry. Most of these distilleries he's gone I've never even heard of them before the episode. But after listening, all I want to do is find out more and explore new ways of looking at spirits and all the nerdy stuff that I love about this industry. And last but certainly not least is Alan's other podcast, If You Have Ghosts, You Have Everything. Exploring the paranormal side of Hoosier-occupied Kentucky, Alan intertwines his own experiences with stories about neighbors, colleagues, and local legends, and why you should never go into the forest alone at night. Part scary story, part homage to the rich history of southern Indiana, this show comes straight from Alan's heart and soul. Take a listen or watch to any of these amazing shows, and thank you to the Barkart Co-op community, For welcoming me. Join the community on Facebook, follow on Instagram and YouTube, and you'll have another show for every day of the week. And when you're starting out, and again, you at that point you didn't have liquid that you could try from back then. Um so you really, as much as you had a brand and a and a history, you were starting from scratch from a flavor profile. Mm -hmm. So um both with and without Dave's help, you know, you you spent a lot of time from what I've I've listened to and heard tasting barrels, blending, looking through profiles from uh, from Ldi slash mgp and uh, figuring out you know what you really wanted to to do. so I'm curious in your thought process, did you uh, your brother, anyone else involved, kind of have a profile in mind that you really liked or wanted to um, mimic in some way or was it more you were trying things with an open mind and with the idea that you'd stumble upon what you really wanted to
2: have? Uh, more of the latter. We we were not going in with any kind of preconceived notion about what the flavor profile should be other than we ended up, uh, I think we actually found this his, <clears throat> bit of history after we had leaned toward the flavor profile that we ended up using, but that Mead, the brand back in the day, we never had a Uh, you know a mash bill specifically for it or anything like that but we did know that it had a decent amount of rye in it but was there was still a bourbon and there was a bellmead rye and all this so we it turned out to go pretty well hand in hand with uh with what mgp or excuse me it was ldi the further we get removed for further we go i'm like i always forget that it was ldi still back in those days um but what LDI had in their inventory was a lot of really excellent, high quality, high rye bourbons, and particularly their what everybody knows now is their uh, their 21 and 36 percent rye bourbon mash bills. And um, you know, in those days, we also started. We actually used a couple different yeast strains. One of which they have, they shortly thereafter discontinued. But we used two different mash bills, two different yeast strains, and and that's really where we learned to hone our, our blending chops before we were able to start distilling. And so as far as the flavor profile in what would become Bellmead bourbon in the modern day, it was, you know, Dave was kind of driving it, but he was, well, we were driving it. He was more kind of navigating, you know, in the passenger seat. And we trusted him a lot because, you know, that's what we paid him to do, uh, or in some ways didn't pay him. I mean, it was, we had really nothing to start out, which is another kind of amazing thing about Dave was that he believed so much in what we were doing and our potential and everything that even though we couldn't really afford more than like three months of a retainer, you know, he kept kept with us and and working on it with us and helping us out. Um, and so that was, you know, that meant the world to us that he kind of believed in it enough to know just have that faith and and keep going with us even though we couldn't afford it and eventually we could and we were able to get business running and you know compensate him as as he needed to be but yeah just kind of an amazing thing to have that happen and the confidence that comes with that some someone that we saw as who was at by really seen by the world is a professional whiskey maker, you know, and that was uh we put a lot of trust in him and to have that reciprocated
1: was pretty amazing.
0: And of the with the the yeast strain, just before I forget, with the yeast strain that was shortly after discontinued, um was that how do I ask this question? Was it were you able to or allowed to continue using that e strain even though ldi mgp had stopped using it or was it only I mean, for their stocks and that's it
2: uh gosh it was so long ago that i honestly am not entirely sure i think they were discontinuing it for their own use uh but i believe we could have essentially had them like contracted with them to continue using it but by the time it was discontinued we had kind of blended away from it because we knew it was going out of use and it would be years then down the line by the time whatever was distilled with that new yeast strain would be available and old enough to to put back in our stock. You know what I mean? So Gotcha. So we ended up blending away from that and it's I mean it is exactly challenges like that that are sort of the crucible you have to go through to to get good and skilled at blending or, or any other discipline really. But, um, yeah. And that's, I know you didn't ask about this, but that's something that I'm, I I really like to tell people is that we were, when we first started outsourcing product, especially in those days, there was a lot of, um, I don't know if pushback, but yeah, there was a lot of pushback from people about the idea of sourcing. And it was kind of this, weird topic that people weren't always confident in. And, you know, a lot of people really put it down. And, um, and that made it really hard for us to know, uh, to have a lot of confidence that we were like doing things right now. We, we had to stand by This is our business. It's not anyone else's business. So we're not gonna let anybody tell us what to do, but we just had to stand on the idea that, look, if we make a product, that's good, most people aren't going to really care where it's from. We're doing it with our heart and soul. And that's, what's important. And eventually people started understanding more and and sort of giving less short shrift to those who the the non-distiller producers um and it yeah the fact is it's it's a great way to start in business when you don't have millions of dollars to to build a distillery or start from there so um yeah but that was i just had to bring that up while i was talking about it i hadn't hadn't really thought about that in a while
0: no it's it's absolutely valid uh and it's, it just is jumping back to the, to the, uh, mash bill. silver so bell mead. You said you found you didn't have the exact mash bill, but you knew that it was a higher rye ish bourbon. Yeah. Um, so I'm double checking my notes here. Cause there, I have here down that it was another brand and it may have been the Nelson's greenbrier, uh, that was a weeded Tennessee whiskey. Mm-hmm. So is it that was right?
2: it- Indeed, Uh, Nelson's Greenbrier Tennessee Whiskey was weeded. And we did, in fact, find the uh, the recipe for that uh, Uh mash bill and and recipe otherwise, which is to say, I mean, most people just equate mash bill with recipe. But, you know, the fact is, a recipe also involves not only the ingredients, but the process, too. And so um, anyway, long story short, yes, Bellmead was a high rye bourbon. Greenbrier Tennessee Whiskey was a weeded tennessee whiskey with no rye in it um so yeah and that's what we've started producing and now actually going back to dave that's that was one of the big advantages because i love weeded whiskeys you know my i have more of a sweet tooth generally uh and so being that weeded whiskeys are, are a bit sweeter than say a a rye based product or uh or high rate high rye bourbon um being the more spicy and peppery thing i I was generally drawn more toward the weeded things, and so when we found out that Greenbrier Tennessee whiskey was in fact a weeded product, I was very, very excited. And then the Dave pickerel was the former master distiller for Maker's Mark, which is a weeded bourbon, and so he had dealt with weeded bourbon, you know, his whole distilling career, uh, and so it was really something of an expert on that, and, and was able to kind of give us little pointers and tips and tricks here and there, and. Again, kind of navigating the way to one of the things that I loved about him was that he wasn't like like a good, I guess, consultant. He he didn't try to own anything that we did. He knew this was our idea, and so he just gave us the the pointers, the facts, the a roadmap for to make our own mistakes and learn from them and put our own thumbprint on it. He didn't try to say no. This is going to be Dave Pickrell's you know, whiskey that's made by Andy Nelson or whatever. Um, so yeah, but then, um, yeah, with what, what became Bell Mead, it worked well because like I said, LDI back in those days had a good cache of, uh, of high rye bourbon to blend from.
0: Absolutely. And how, I guess for, for how long did you officially work with Dave? Cause I know he's someone who once you've worked with him, he was willing to take your call whenever, but uh, when did in preparation for the next question, when did the partnership kind of officially cease?
2: That's a good question. I'm not sure there was really an official, I mean,
1: gosh, probably. I mean, if we, let's see, we opened in 2014.
2: It was a, I I don't think I've ever been asked that. I don't know. There was never like a particular moment. It was because we would kind of paid him on retainer for a while when we first started getting going, but then we got going and we didn't need, it was more just like an ongoing basis where, yeah, if we need him to come in, it's like, all right, we'll, we'll fly you out for a day or three and pay you hourly and that kind of a thing. But it was just that ongoing thing. So there was never really, I mean, I guess if I, if I must say it, it would be, you know, until the day he died. I mean, that was, that was to be it, but we, you know, I'd still give him a call today. If he were here, ask him, you know, a little bit here and there. Cause the other thing was he knew not only about the science and process of distilling, but not to mention the, the mechanics of all the piping and all these, all these things that you don't necessarily think of. As uh, the romantic part of distilling, but also he had had such um such a look into all the other distilleries and brands that he had consulted for. he had he got such a good um good view into all the different sort of business plans and and marketing plans and seeing what worked and how to do it and all that. So he was kind of uh an expert in all of that, given his his point of view and perspective on everything.
0: so the reason i the reason I ask is, I genuinely didn't know what the day would be either, uh, and and if it was uh, until the day he died. I'm always curious when a distillery works with a consultant, and it, it could be it could be Dave, could be you know Nancy Fraley, could be uh, the also late Jim Swan for more world whiskeys. You know the, these consultants are kind of titans of the industry in a certain way. They have fingers in so many pies and uh, and influence with that. There's also kind of a phase after either after or later in the relationship where the producer just for lack of a better term, they're on their own feet, you know, they're they're not the baby that has to be carried around anymore. They're, they're walking and running. And I'm always curious at that inflection point or inflection points in some cases, what changes were made and what deviations came about from, let's say you and Charlie, as opposed to what maybe Dave would have done for better or worse. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Interesting. Um, You know, there, there nothing comes to mind as like a big, bold, obvious answer to that. And I think that is due a lot to what I said a minute ago about Dave, just being able to kind of you know, here, here's the roadmap, go whichever way you want. Um, because again, yeah, he wanted us to put our own fingerprints on it, have our own heart and soul to it, not his. And so he just kind of laid everything out for us and let us kind of peck around here and see if we liked this or that idea, whether it be in marketing or flavor profile or you know, uh tour path kind of a thing or, or distillery layout. Um so I guess from there it was it, that was it became in some ways more more exciting in that I don't well to be fair I don't know if there's anything more exciting than physically setting our distillery up and having the still get up and running and the first time you do a water test make sure all the pipes are are uh, not leaking and all that then it's like all right time to go that, that's about the most exciting that it can get but then once yeah we graduate kind of to To walking and, and running, then it's exciting because we get, uh, you know, we get the fundamentals under our belt. Uh, This is our experience. Yeah. We got the fundamentals under our belt and we knew, you know, mechanically how to make whiskey and, and a lot of the sort of theory and science behind it. And then once we had that, let's get more creative. Let's see what we can tweak here and there, knowing the, again, the science, knowing things about you know, yeast science, whether it be you know, changing the uh, the amount of yeast we'd pitch, the type of yeast we'd pitch, the kind of flavor profiles that any given yeast, x, y, or z would would, you know put into the whiskey, and, uh, you know, what temperature each yeast does best at, and how method of cooling, you know, all these very specific variables, getting to kind of take that piece by piece and and decide this is this is what our profile is going to be. That I mean and and it's just a long process, right? There's not one moment where, you know, this is it, this is that kind of inflection point as you put it. Um it's just a series, it's just an evolution that it's like when you're in it, you don't even realize anything's changing. It's like when you've got a kid, you see the kid every day, you don't see them growing up until you know their uncle sees them every three to six months or whatever. it's like, Oh my God, you've gotten so big. It, it's totally one of those things. And so, um, it's an interesting thing as being asked that I had, it's, it's kind of fun to, to go back there in my memory and think about things like that.
0: If I had to rename my podcast after all this time, it would probably be called inflection point or something like that. Cause that's, those are the <laughs> points where I'm most interested. I love yeah. the, the turning points in histories. It sounds uh, like a political, uh,
1: talk show, it does. like Crossfire or something. It does. Inflection yeah. point. Uh, the So with the
0: um, process that was developed to for, for you to distill, of course, part of that process being a, t- a Tennessee whiskey is you have to have the charcoal filtering. Mm-hmm. Um, it was fascinating to hear you talk about it. I I didn't mark in the question notes which interview this came from, but to hear uh, you and Charlie describe the differences in how you charcoal filter as opposed to, you know, George Dickel or Jack Daniels, and just to give a little context um, before I let you kind of describe that and how your method came about, I haven't been to Dickel, so I I just know they use the wool kind of blanket almost to disperse the whiskey over the charcoal, whereas Jack, you've got ten foot high vats where. A drop of whiskey takes anywhere from six hours to a day to get through. And Mm -hmm. it's really densely packed, small granules, um, all of that. So you have those two versions of charcoal filtering, and then you've got Nelson Greenbrier version. Mm -hmm. And just last point before I let you, where I promise I let you talk is um, (laughs) is Tennessee uh, law just states has to go through charcoal filtering. I I almost equate it to whiskey having to be in an oak container. It doesn't say Mm -hmm. how long. It can be one second, and technically it's it's whiskey. It can go through half an inch of charcoal filtering and technically be called Tennessee whiskey. So how did your methodology and your way of filtering come to be?
2: Well, yeah, I I must say, first of all, I appreciate... The details because i uh i love i'm kind of a nerd for those little details um specifically you said oak container which rarely does anyone you know use the actual terminology which is in the ttb guidelines Oak so container is the word not barrel container just happens that the barrel is the easiest and most logical so everybody uses it but you could use a, a square oak box if you wanted just not all that
0: reasonable uh- Pat Heist has said he wants to make a casket strength bourbon, yeah, because uh, you can make a cask cask shaped oak container, and that's legal.
1: So he as long looks as it it's so good, I way.
2: could see the the marketing the with him and that I, that big old goatee next to the casket, just dressed as a I don't know, it's a great Halloween image. I think. Um,
1: Sorry, continue. <laughs> uh,
2: well, so so yeah, that I, I'm also glad you mentioned the the state law. Uh, And the recent, more recent, uh, I don't know, issue that came about uh, in terms of the definition of Tennessee whiskey, to me, it is absolutely the beauty of it is that there is no specific definition or guideline around how you have to charcoal mellow, just that you have to. That is one of those points that, again, it lets you put your own fingerprint on that product. And it changes the character of your final product compared to some other distillery that does it a slightly different way. And that's, that's what makes the world go round. You know, everybody kind of does it their own way. And if it were all the same, it'd be boring. So one of the things that in the legislation that was, what was that? 2016, I want to say.
1: Something like that. Yeah
2: codifying the definition of Tennessee whiskey, which speaking of nerdy details, uh, little kind of understood fact, uh, TTB does not recognize Tennessee whiskey as its own thing. They would only recognize that as a geographical indicator, like whiskey from Tennessee, but TTB doesn't recognize it as being basically bourbon that's distilled and aged in Tennessee and has to go through the charcoal mellowing process. Mm -hmm. So that the definition of Tennessee whiskey, as we know it, colloquially, is is a state of Tennessee definition, not a federal definition, which is an important distinction. Mm -hmm. But years ago, there was an effort um, to, in my personal opinion, and I believe the opinion of a a whole lot of other distillers, um, to effectively chip away at what we'll call the brand equity of the definition of Tennessee whiskey. So uh you know while i am not um in the business of speaking for other brands the whole world knows that what people know of tennessee whiskey now in the modern day is because a brand called jack daniels exists and we have them to thank for a lot of that now that is kind of what people had in mind and and Frankly, what was created was the definition of Tennessee whiskey within the state was, as I stated. Effectively, it's bourbon, which is to say, you know, a spirit made from at least fifty one percent corn, aged in unused charred oak containers um, and distilled in and aged in the state of Tennessee and undergoing the charcoal filtering process. So that's what we knew was Tennessee whiskey. and it it's broad enough that, again, you can put your own individual, I feel like I'm using this term a million times today, but your own fingerprints on it, your own character. I think and that's only the third term. So I, I think you're, I think you're doing fine. Continue. At least at least <laughs> it makes sense. People know what I'm talking about. And yeah. uh, anyway, so there was an effort to essentially remove the requirement for not only charcoal mellowing, but also for an unused charred oak container. So in other words, if this law had been changed to the satisfaction of, I believe it was Diageo that was really, uh, Diageo and another um, brand, an independent brand out of Trimble, Tennessee called uh, Full Throttle. And I'm not, I I don't, I'm not like throwing anybody under the bus here. This is just like facts of how it went. It was public knowledge. Yeah. Yeah. It was a long time ago and we're all good, but um, anyway, so they brought up this idea. So if, it, if they had, that side had gotten their way, it would be that Tennessee whiskey is, you know, has to be essentially, uh, you know, a whiskey distilled and aged in Tennessee, at least 51% corn, but you can put it in a previously used barrel and you wouldn't have to do the charcoal filtering process. Mm-hmm. So the reason that's important to us is not only the, the charcoal filtering is important because it distinguishes us. From any other state specifically, but in my mind, the even more important part is that used barrel—the potential for a used barrel already. Now, to me, one of the fundamental um, advantages that we have in American whiskeys and, and bourbons, in particular, and Tennessee whiskeys, is that we are required to use a fresh barrel that has not yet been used before. And the reason that I find that important is the analogy of um, of a, a tea bag, where if you steep your water your tea bag in hot water, you're going to get a nice cup of tea. When well, you take that tea bag out and you put it in a second cup of water, all that good stuff, you know, all the best stuff is gone and you're just it's going to take you a lot longer to try to extract some of the good stuff and you're frankly just not going to get as much out of it. And so depending on what you're looking for, that may be for better or worse but the fact is it's still a fundamentally different product if you put your whiskey in a used barrel as opposed to a brand new unused one. And so to me that's that is the uh, you know the heart and soul of American whiskeys or bourbons rather and Tennessee whiskeys as we know them now. So that was a huge thing. Now I, you know without getting into all the the kind of back and forth and and how that legislation went. The fact is that it ended up remaining as is, and the vast majority of distilleries within the state were very, very happy because it, it really is a a matter of, of, you know, keeping that brand equity high and, and keeping the big picture kind of quality points really high while not putting too many guardrails or handcuffs on people by saying you have to do it this specific way. It was, you have to do it this general way. And, to me, that's, that's the very best way to foster the most creativity is like put a little bit of pressure on someone and they'll find a good creative way to make something unique out of it. And that to me is just kind of a fundamental aspect of, of human nature and creativity and making something unique and interesting and cool. So, uh, yeah, I was quite happy with the way that turned out, but it's, it's important and was very much important for us because we're so, I mean, we're in the world of Tennessee whiskey here. I mean, we call our Greenbrier, the original Tennessee whiskey because it dates back to 1860, which is, you know, earlier than any other Tennessee whiskey that's, that's out on the market today. So, uh, so it was a big part of our, not only our history, but kind of brand identity and, um, and everything like that. So
0: it was important. Yeah, it's six years earlier and two RDs, now DSPs, earlier than uh, Jack in 1866. So it is the oldest. Uh, and again, I look forward to Drew's book to learn more about the histories. Of course, I am I think I'm comfortable saying, of course, on this, and i know more about Kentucky bourbon history and American whiskey history than I do Tennessee, and especially outside of those large brands. So um, Drew, if you're listening, can't wait till that book comes up. By the way,
2: I must agree. Shout out to Drew Hannish. Drew is amazing. He um, Every now and then he'll ask us, you know, he does just really great research. And uh, so we have him to thank for a, a good handful of little tidbits here and there that he's kind of found out over the years that, you know, clarified or slightly adjusted kind of our points of view on how our company history was and the very specific details around it. It's really I love that being because you know, to me, yeah, to our company, the the truly important thing is the the actual truth, factual truth, and exactly how it was. You can kind of romanticize anything, but to me, the more truthful and accurate it is the better the story because it already is like the truth is stranger than fiction type thing. In my mind, applies to to our business and uh, and that's exactly what makes it so exciting. So. Drew's been a big help with that. And I appreciate his, uh, his hard work and diligent research on all that.
0: Absolutely. Uh, it's, it's a model to which I aspire because uh, I'm embarking on some research projects of my own. So oh, nice. hopefully I'll have a little mentorship on there. But, but before I let you get away from it, because um, I, I don't think it was answered, which was, what is your version of the charcoal filtering?
2: Oh, yes. Uh, so we, take, we have a, um, a whiskey barrel that we took the heads off of and we put a, uh, a stainless steel mesh uh, kind of layer around towards the bottom. And then we lay a uh, wool blanket on top of that just to catch the fines of the, the charcoal so it doesn't integrate it, you know, so it doesn't go into the whiskey as it runs through. And then we stack, we just kind of pack in there roughly, a let's say, two feet worth of sugar maple charcoal charcoal in there. And it's, you know, we don't grind it down all the time. They're chunks from, you know, as big as your I don't know, thumbnail or whatever, but mostly bigger than that and up to the size of your fist or so. So pretty good assortment of sizes. We just let it run through. So we'll have, let's say our uh for even numbers sake, let's say we end up with a hundred, you know, proof gallons of spirit off the still from one run. That'll take roughly 20 minutes to run through our, we have this big it's it's effectively a, uh, a shower head that we've hooked up to our, um, our, uh, collection tank off the still. So we'll pump it through this shower head and just let it really shower over that, uh, sort of two feet of sugar maple charcoal that's contained in a, a whiskey barrel. And We put the barrel up on top of a tote, let it shower through there. It takes about 20 minutes for a whole run to get through there. And, uh, and that's that. So it's, you know, it's certainly a lighter treatment um than say Jack Daniels is. Um, but it's it's our treatment and no one else's. So that's what's exciting to me.
0: Ooh, I said as long as you've got the freedom to have your own and it's not dictated to you, might as well. Yeah. And so it was the idea. Um actually no, let me rephrase that question too, which is uh, when you were figuring out what kind of charcoal filtering you want to do? Uh, be it method, depth, um, granule size, any of that? Uh, did you go around to the existing Tennessee distilleries and and check them out, or was it more in-house experimentation?
2: Sure. oh, we we had gone along uh, around to those you know years prior in our research of building a business plan, who you know the networking part of it where who are you? How, what is whiskey? What is Tennessee whiskey, and all these kind of things? So it was a, uh, a more sort of elementary, um, part of the process for us in starting out. But we took note of how everybody did it, and we had, you know, everybody you can see on the Jack Daniels tour how they do it, and that's a, a big part of their process. And and Dickel the same thing, and so. Fortunately for us there, yeah, there weren't yet all that many Tennessee whiskey distilleries, excuse me. Um, really, I mean, there was, there were the two big guys and then, you know, there were, there was Pritchard's who, uh, you know, going back to the, the requirement in terms of state law, Pritchard's is actually one that got grandfathered in. So they're not required to do the charcoal mellowing at all, but they were the only one, which is kind of a fun little footnote in itself. Um, But to me, the advantage was that, you know, not everybody's doing it the exact same way. So we can just do whatever we want and whoever comes after us can, you know, copy us or do it some other different, weird, creative way. Either way, this is just us and we're going to stand on it. Uh, And that's kind of how it worked. And, you know, a lot of it was, you know, we weren't, we hadn't had our own versions of like... 50, 60 years of, um, of personal experience in testing how it's going to work. So we just figured, you know, let's do it this way. It's not as intense as some of the other distilleries and, but we like that, that kind
1: of character, um, in it. And so that's just kind of how it happened. With that, I want to, uh,
0: just move into a couple of the products that you have, uh, and. As I said, the Bellmead brand is, has been scaled back quite a bit in favor of the Nelson Brothers um, and the Nelson's Greenbrier Tennessee Whiskey. Uh, Bellmead still will be coming out as a, kind of an annual or once-in-a-while release uh, for special releases, but the focus of the brand is really on the Nelson brands. Right. Um, I do want to first shout out the, uh, the 15-year-old Rye. Hmm. Which I'm only shouting out now because I'm believe I believe it's sold out. Um, it is, yeah, yeah. I got a bottle of that, and that is some of the best rye. It might be the best rye that I've had this year. Wow, thank I, you. I think it is. Um, it was, and it was fascinating because it was um, ten years. It was ten year old rye from LDI MGP, but then aged another five years in Tennessee. So yeah, for the total, it of, may have even been. It may
2: have even been. Uh... Like eight or nine when we got it, and we just sat on it for yeah six or seven more years.
0: Right. So so let's let's even split the baby and say you know nine and six or eight and seven and yeah. It's so you know significant amount of time in uh, the Tennessee climate as opposed to Indiana, which Mm -hmm. I know doesn't sound like they're that far apart, but they are. Uh, And it's a big country, Uh, and Mm. the the flavor and depth on that rye. At something like 104 proof, 105, not particularly high, but the flavor and depth was just outstanding on that. Thank you. Um, so, definitely want to shout that one out. Well,
2: I must say also, yeah, I mean, I'm, it's funny because I feel I, I'm conflicted, and this is maybe still just kind of uh, emotional uh, scarring from the days when we first started and getting so much shit talk from people about sourcing. Uh, you know, and it wasn't like the overwhelming, uh, sort of sentiment, but it's, that's, it's like the criticism is what you hear. Even if you get a million nice comments, you hear the one crappy one. Uh, but in any case, it's funny when I, I'm like hesitating even to say thank you because it's not our distillate, but the fact is we took that distillate and we took, it was eight barrels worth and we, we blended and we tried all different kinds of blends and, and proofs and all and came up with what we found to be the ideal sort of you know blend quantity and proof and all so uh i just want to me it's like that's as as valid like blending and distilling are the yin and yang you know it takes you can't if you have if you have a crappy you know distillate you can either enhance it by blending it well or you can blend it poorly and just enhance how crappy it is. Um, and vice versa, if you have really excellent distillate, you know, you can actually blend it in such a way that it doesn't seem as it's not quite as good as it is just by itself. Um, or you can blend it to make it even better than the the sum of its parts. And so anyway, it just it each side takes the other to help uh to help make it the best that it can. And they're they're equally as valid and important in the in terms of the final product in the bottle so i don't know why i felt the need to say that but yeah i appreciate it 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 was a fun product to do
0: i hear what you're saying and the i think the point is well taken and, and from from my perspective and i think i can speak for uh, several of the people who would share this opinion is that there's a difference between buying someone else's distillate putting it in a bottle Nothing in between. And I include in that if you just take another, another distillate, put a finish on it and put it in a bottle, that's one thing. But in the case of this rye, as you said, you, you bought it at, let's say, eight, nine years and then sat on it. It could have been for a number of reasons, but one of them among them would have been, hey, maybe this is going to get even better as it ages. And then by the time you get to the point where you've got eight barrels that I think yielded only like, what, 300? bottles or something like that it wasn't a lot yeah something like that um so basically the equivalent of maybe one and a half barrels generously out of eight so um a quarter of your not even no yeah. less than that yeah uh of your yield there's something to there's a lot to be said for knowing when to wait knowing when to pull the trigger on it and then saying okay we're not just going to dump the remaining the remnants of the eight barrels we're going to figure out what the proportions are of it and get the best product out of it so i think there's a a big difference there that that should be recognized um yeah and, totally agree you know i wish there was more because i would definitely buy more but i'm also happy to have a bottle when there is no more because that you know it, yeah that's just it's just a selfish it. thing yeah you know? <laughs> yeah that's
2: the human nature aspect it's uh yeah yeah
0: um so the uh, the other product that I really wanted to ask you about, which I'm guessing you probably get asked about on, on almost every podcast um, is of course the Bellmead honey. Mm-hmm. Uh, now I've been, uh, I've been fortunate in that I've been able to try both barrels of the Bellmead honey that have come out. And I have the Nelson brothers honey cast finish. Now, both of these have, or all three, I should say, have, um, true bee honey. So mm-hmm. you send the cast true bee; they fill it up with their honey. So they get barrel aged honey, and then they send you back the barrels. Um, uh, now those two Bell Mead releases are among the kind of legendary stories of, of the new movement, new whiskey movement, especially single barrels, I know that people were waiting hundreds deep in line to get them, uh, So again, fortunate to have tried them. And now I have a bottle of the Nelson brothers honey and I was trying it alongside and there's, there's definitely differences. I mean, there were differences between batch one and, you know, barrel one and barrel two of the bell mead honey.
1: Now I'm, what I'm curious about, I guess, is by the, when you're thinking about putting
0: out a Nelson brothers release, honey cask finish, you know and i've heard you talk about the the insanity that goes on or went on for those other releases were you thinking more that you wanted to create a product that was of the same vein but more available or was it or were you going more towards you want to try to recreate this or but using our new whiskey if you will, our own whiskey. And I'm just curious which way your thinking process went around that.
1: Yeah. So
2: with, uh, you know, it kind of starts with a fundamental um, difference or really change or evolution from the brands of Bellmead to Nelson Brothers. So to clarify, and I don't know if this was the right way to read this from your understanding, but uh, Nelson Brothers is still um, all sourced spirit. It's none of our own distillate yet. It's just more okay. of a different uh, branding. And so, part of the primary driver behind that is uh, visually and aesthetically, you look at the label of Nelson Brothers and you put it right next to Greenbrier Tennessee Whiskey, and there's an obvious, clear connection there. Whereas, if you put Greenbrier Tennessee Whiskey next to a Bell Mead bottle, you'd have no idea that they were related or from the same producer at all. Mm-hmm. So, that was a big part of it. Now, when we move from Bell Mead to Nelson Brothers, we're still using the same inventory of barrels to put in there. Um, And so we, it gave us an opportunity to tweak the blend a little bit, but we didn't go crazy. So it's because we want, we understand and hope that it would be the same, you know, baseline consumer for it. So we didn't want to go too far out of bounds on that. We wanted to keep it, yeah, this high rye bourbon at around, you know, we went from, so with classic for Bellmead classic to Nelson brothers classic, we went from 90.4 proof to 93.3 proof, for example, but it's still the same basic high rye bourbon. The blend is a little bit different and it's, you know, it's still bourbons from, from Tennessee, Kentucky, and Indiana. And so, so there's that. So you taste you know bellmead classic side by side with nelson brothers classic you'll probably tell a little bit of a difference but not a world of difference and so in that respect when it came to doing the honey cask the idea was just this is going to be as similar to the bellmead honey as the nelson brothers classic is to bellmead classic you know it was we know that this honey cask finishing works really well with this style bourbon this high ride mash but this you know this blend this flavor profile and so we just kind of wanted to keep it that way. We didn't want to go crazy and and too different. So I guess I would say the difference, like, you know, there's a difference between each batch of Bellmead that we, di- that we released, um, you know, in between each batch is, is going to be different. And so there's going to be a difference in each batch of Nelson brothers, honey, that we release as well. Now there, we were able to release a little bit more of the Nelson brothers, honey, uh, and that was partially due to just kind of starting and figuring out to order, uh, kind of max out the number of barrels we could use of, of honey barrels uh, from Truebee, And so there's kind of a limit that we can put on it um, based on what bee can do themselves. We really enjoy and appreciate that partnership. And so, yeah, that's, I hope that,
0: does that make sense? It does, and yes, uh, you're right that I uh, misstated the the source of the the underlying whiskey. Let's say. Well, I'm glad, I'm, um, I'm glad
2: um, that got brought up because I get asked that a lot um, because it is something I guess we I, I guess we didn't make it all that clear when we transitioned from Bellmead to Nelson Brothers, but yeah, I mean, I again, I'm very much interested in uh, in accuracy and and factual truth, and so I just want to make sure that's. Uh, a known thing that it, that it is still it's not our distillate yet still that's just the Greenbrier Tennessee whiskey is our own
0: so far. Gotcha. Gotcha. And I should say I have enjoyed seeing the evolution of your own distillate as it's come along. Um in you know full transparency honestly I, I think I tried it a couple of years ago and for me at least it still needed a little bit more time. But having tried it recently within the past six months or so, I think it has hit that point where it feels like it's it's kind of where it belongs on that, so yeah, it's I agree, you know, I, I would say it's a good time to retry it if if you're listening and you've tried it before and you weren't sure, um try some of the the new stock or the older now older stock, I should say, uh, yeah, I, I do there's a significant difference. It really did come into its own there really is,
2: features. and i'm I yeah, thank you for bringing that up because that is a thing that um, you're one hundred percent right about that and and just um for anybody out there looking, if you see a bottle on the shelf and the way that you can kind of tell what is the earlier batches versus the more recent ones is the newer batches on the back label have the back label copy is broken down into, I think it's three different paragraphs and you will not see an age statement there anywhere because it is all above four years old. It's between four and six years old, kind of averaging five probably. Whereas the earlier batches the first that we put out had some two-year-old distillate in there, which was, I didn't love doing that. But then again, we're, we're a business and we got to make things work. So, uh, so we did that and it was, you know, we, we put it out still proudly. And then for about the next two years, there, there remained on that it's just a single paragraph on the back label and there is somewhere about three quarters of the way down the line it says within that copy aged a minimum of two years in you know in charred white oak uh, barrels and so um anyway that's how you can kind of tell but uh it is an interesting thing for sure uh there is a little more kind of grain forward aspect in the earlier batches and you can tell that grain has turned to more of that the barrel aged kind of sweetness that is more indicative of the weeded bourbon, uh, the weeded mash bill, um, that has, that's got better, gotten better
1: with age for sure.
0: So just in our uh, last few minutes, I wanted to touch on, uh, your own podcast, still life. Uh, and, uh, you just came out as of recording, uh, with episode 15 with, uh, Fawn Weaver and over those first fifteen episodes, you've had a, an eclectic mix of guests, you know, everyone, a couple of distillers, um, Brandon O'Daniel, who's also been on the podcast, uh, a NASCAR driver as well. Uh, so I'm curious, uh, and this is more from the podcaster side, you know what made you want to jump into the podcast space and kind of what's your goal with it?
2: Yeah, to me well, it was Fully my idea initially, and I'm really happy to have made it actually happen. And that is to say, when I was probably, let's see, in the early, probably 2007, 8, 9, I was working before the distillery finally got off the the ground. I was working as a video editor uh, for a software publishing company, and I had this compulsion to take my video camera and go around town and get people's stories, particularly those. in the you know, community of folks um, experiencing homelessness, and I never did it, and I have regretted it so much, but I had this compulsion to just grab people's stories without judgment, just letting like capturing their stories and and sort of lending a uh, in inherent humanity to it because once you kind of like, it's a lot harder to fear someone or hate someone when you're talking to them up close, you know, it's it just that's mm-hmm. sometimes all it takes. And so anyway, I've always had that, you know, been compelled to do that. And I didn't end up making that happen for one reason or another, but still the idea of, of interviewing people and just letting them talk about themselves and chatting with them and creating this dialogue. But it's very, there's a, it's very cathartic to me. Um, just engaging in long form conversation, I feel like is such an, uh, unfortunately such an old it's almost an outdated thing. And now, thankfully, podcasts have have been able to revive that. But I there's almost nothing I despise more than seeing on, you know, some news blurb, someone asking a politician something and it's a quick question and it's kind of meaningless. But then they use it to say whatever question they wish they'd been asked instead of answering the question they were asked. So anyway, I just kind of craved that that kind of um relationship uh with people and and so that was really kind of my idea and then it's like well i'm in the distilled spirits industry there are a lot of people in this and a lot of the uh the podcasts and shows and things like that you know whether whether it be a youtube reviewer or whatever so much of it particularly um, in terms of like consumers or just whiskey enthusiasts um, was geared more towards say mash bills or the technical details of distilling or things like that. And, and my interest in this is more highlighting the human stories. You know, I want to know how someone grew up, what affected them, what made them who they are that got them into this industry. And kind of my hope is to gradually paint a sort of a, a portrait of the industry based on the hospitality industry in general, based on who is in it, not necessarily what their, you know, profession shows, but like who they're. You know, their brother or sister or best friend would know um that kind of a thing. And and so I must say, uh, yeah, they're probably the most outside of the industry would be catch Secor core from old pro medicine show, not necessarily in the industry, and then Stefan Parsons, the NASCAR driver. They were just really fun because we've done um kind of partnerships with both of them. Um and and so It was like, well, these are interesting people. I want to know more about them. And, you know, we threw a little whiskey talk in there and maybe drank cocktails while we were talking, but you know, I'm, I'm not trying to put too, uh, too many heavy guidelines on it. It's kind of whoever I find is interesting or, uh, or worth chatting with and talking to it's, it's kind of all, all up in the air for me.
0: I get there's, I've enjoyed listening to the episodes so far. Uh, I As I said, I was in the middle of your one with Fawn Weaver uh, when I just ran out of time to finish it beforehand, but um, I think there's definitely a niche for you there, about, especially when you're talking to people, uh, maybe from, if I put it this way, from my perspective, because you're in the industry, mm-hmm. um, you can talk to someone like like Brandon, like Fawn, and there's a little bit more trust and equanimity between you guys, so you can you'd be able to ask the questions of, well, how did you grow up? If I'm asking that as an outsider from the industry, I may know a lot about their whiskey and their distillery, but it's odd. You know what I mean? It's disjointed. Totally. having those personal relationships uh, there is definitely a niche. I haven't seen anyone else really doing that. Um, I think think and hope for that reason, because it's otherwise kind of weird. But um, Mm -hmm. I look forward to hearing more uh, episodes as they come out. Good. Well,
2: thank you. And I appreciate you saying that. I mean, I, I think a prime example of that is Chris Fletcher, the master distiller for Jack Daniels. I mean, I had on, him on in one of the probably middle, I don't know, 7th or 8th episode. And it's just, he's a, a friend of mine. We were, we were in the Tennessee Distillers Guild together and known him for years. And like, we have kids close to the same age. And so it's, uh, but just talking to him on a level that's, you know, we kind of get along with each other well, and we'll kind of joke around at guild meetings and board meetings and stuff like that. Uh, and so it was a cool chance. It's also, honestly, one of my favorite things is, as uh, I heard someone else who has a podcast, maybe it was John Edwards from Dad's Drinking Bourbon, which he was my first guest, said something about how, you know, as an adult, it's not that easy to make new friends. And so the the sort of craving of, uh, I guess, for lack of a better word, the craving of like new friendship or just relationships and these long form interviews, and conversations is, it's more of an excuse as a proper adult to say, Hey, you want to come over and hang out at my house? Cause you just don't do that as an adult, really. You know, you got other things going on and you sound like a child if you say it that way, um, or you can anyway, but this is like a really great excuse. And I, I think similarly, you know, being a, a whiskey fan or enthusiast is actually another perfect way to have that excuse to say, Hey, you guys want to come hang out at my house we'll drink some whiskey together instead of like my mom just got this new big jug of chocolate milk come on over um you know it's a it's all kind of in the same
0: vein yeah, whiskey versus chocolate milk i don't know if that's ah, a bait for another day the, <laughs> they both got their place who knows yeah um, you might be surprised i don't know yeah uh, yeah well andy thank you so much for taking the time today this was a really great interview really enjoyed it hope you did as well yeah absolutely um,
2: thank you so much
0: if you're if you're going to find yourself through nashville uh it's not too far from the airport it's pretty easy to get around nashville so make sure take a trip over to to nelsons it's you can find them at uh also ngbd.com and all the links of course and socials will be in the show notes as well as research for this episode um andy hang on with me for just a minute after recording this has been another episode of the whiskering podcast thank you all for listening and supporting and as this episode comes out i believe we're going to be just about entering the new year so happy new year everybody see you in 2024 hey folks thanks for listening to another episode of the whiskering podcast if you like what you hear please go ahead and click that subscribe follow or like button leave a rating review on your podcast app of choice and let me know what you want to hear. You can reach out to me through the podcast apps or email me at david at whiskeymyweddingring.com with any suggestions or ideas for new show guests. You can also support the podcast at patreon.com slash whiskey in my wedding ring. That's whiskey with an E for as little as a dollar a month. $5 a month gets you access to bonus content, including our soon to resume under the influencer series. And $25 a month means you join the barrel share club. Each month. Barrel Share Club members get to try products sent to me for review, bottles from my own collection, and sometimes bottles I just pick up because they're fun or interesting. Right now, only five spots remain in the Barrel Share Club, so grab your place today. Finally, please follow on Instagram. You can follow me at WhiskeyMyWeddingRing or at WhiskeyRingPodcast. You can follow me on Twitter at WhiskeyRing. You can follow on Facebook at WhiskeyMyWeddingRing or join the Facebook group, The Whiskey Ringers Group and I hope to see you there. Cheers, thank you for the support, and see you next time.